Another appreciator story episode here. This is out of The Bullseye, volume one, number one, a British story paper. These were all uh, never renewed, so they are in the public domain. This is from January 24th, 1931, and it is an adventure of the man with a thousand faces called the Castle of Fear. A stranger comes. Brilliant flares blazed against the dusk of early evening, lighting the sideshows which stood around the huge central tent of Bailey's Mammoth Circus and Fun Fair. Steam-driven roundabouts whirled giddily, piping gay tunes which could not drown the occasional ringing smash, as well as a well-aimed ball shattered a milky coconut at the nearby shies. Piercing whistles on the whirligig, the sensation of the year, were rivaled by the laughing shrieks of girls as swing boats swept them skyward. There was light and color everywhere, and at the painted fronts of the sideshows, barkers bawled freely at the slow-moving crowds. Walk up, walk up, walk up, ladies and gentlemen. Walk up and shake hands with the living skeleton and the tattooed man, two world-famous freaks in one tent. Magellan, the mystic, he can read your future and your past. They roared through megaphones, thudded drums to attract attention, or world rattles, but at times even their efforts were drowned by thunderous applause swelling from the packed audience in the mighty circus tent where the first show of the evening was being given. Crowds moved and swirled over the 40-acre field where the fair was pitched, trampling the grass, staring with the glare of lights on their faces. They were country folk, would come from miles around, spending freely the money they had hoarded against this annual visit of the fair. The road outside was lined by carts and old cars, vans and wagons by which the people had arrived, and through this press of dingy vehicles, a lordly limousine threaded its way. Its polished paintwork reflected the lights like glass, and its metal gleamed like silver. The great car stopped at the entrance to the big field, and from it stepped a man who wore a silk hat and a frock coat, who carried a gold-tipped cane in his hand, and who wore a gardenia in his buttonhole. He wore elegant shoes, and on his hands were soft yellow gloves. Passing groups of country folks stared as they saw him, and for a few moments he stood, surveying the press, then made his way forward. As he drew nearer the lights, they winked and flashed from the diamond in his cravat and caught the yellow glimmer of his gold cufflinks. He ignored the sideshows and the roundabouts. Men in charge of the booth saw him and wondered who he was and what a man so faultlessly attired wanted with Bailey's Mammoth Circus. He skirted the ropes which held up the huge tent and went toward the caravans and wagons huddled at the back, pausing at last where one of the circus hands was trimming a wig in the light which came down through the open flap of the big tent. Excuse me, the stranger said, but I'm looking for someone named Phil Flash. The man glanced up and his jaw dropped as he took in the stranger's appearance. Eh? he gasped. What's that, sir? Who do you want? Phil Flash, came the answer. Oh, you mean him with the rubber face, don't you? Rubber face, the stranger repeated. 
Yes, he's one of the performers in the circus, sir, said the man with the wig. He can make his face go all shapes and imitate anybody's features. Why, nobody knows what is his real face. You'll find him over there. He turned and pointed. See that red caravan? See the yellow one behind it? Well, that's where he is, and you'll just catch him. He just finished his turn. I thank you. And the stranger strode on towards the yellow caravan. The Castle of Fear In the yellow caravan, Phil Flash sat on a box, loosening the black, close-fitting garments that he had worn in the sanded ring. He was quite young, and now that his features were in repose, he was not unhandsome. He had very clear eyes, and his every movement was quick, as though his sinewy figure was built of taut muscle and fine sinew. There was nothing about him to show the strange quality which he possessed, or to indicate that he could alter his features at will. Yet, with a touch here and a touch there, he could change his face. He could make his nose snub or hooked, his cheeks fat or drawn and hollow. He could even shift the setting of his ears so that they jutted from the sides of his head or lay flat, so that they jutted from the sides of his head or lay flat, and he could change his chin from a rock-like form to something long and pointed or rounded and receding. He was billed as the man with a thousand faces, and the advertisements said no more than the truth. His ability was half a gift and half because of much practice and training of the tiny facial muscles set beneath his clear skin. And beyond all this, he could make the color come and go in his face, while his clear voice could mimic almost any other. At the moment, he was staring moodily before him. This game isn't getting me anywhere, he told himself. The ringmasters just ticked me off because my show didn't go well, but I did my best. It isn't the first time I've been told off either. He stared gloomily at his shoes and thought on. I don't know, but what's the good of it all? Sometimes the crowd laughs and sometimes it doesn't. And I just earn enough to keep myself and that's all. I want to do something better than this. I want to... He broke off. Outside, the stranger was moving up the steps of the yellow caravan and Phil's eyes widened as he sighted his resplendent figure. I hope you will pardon my interruption, the newcomer said. But if you are Phil Flesh, I have some news for you. I shall, however, require some proof of your identity. I'm Phil Flesh, all right, Phil answered. The odd ah, young man with a thousand faces, I believe. That's right, Phil smiled and passed his right hand over his face for a moment, then dropped it, and the stranger started. Before him now stood a young man utterly unlike the one who had been there before. His eyes popped like unripe gooseberries. The skin was drawn from his cheeks, his chin stuck out, and on his lips was a vacuous grin. Again, Phil's hand passed across his features, and once more his face changed. Now his cheeks were fat and ruddy. His eyes were sunk into his head, and they twinkled. His chin was red and round, and he had a bulge of fat beneath it so that he looked like some lively old farmer. Evans, that's marvelous, the stranger gasped. That's nothing. Phil drew his palms over his features and became normal again. I call those stock faces. Look at this. He turned a moment to a mirror on the wall, swiftly touching his face here and there with his fingertips, 
working as a sculptor might work on modeling play. Then he looked around again. Great Scott, why that's the face of the man who directed me to you. What, Jimmy Grubfill asked? Yes, that's him. He became himself once more as he went on. Well, does that satisfy you that I'm, that I'm me, as it were? Horse, it's extraordinary, startling. The man in the silk hat was still gazing in amazement. Well, my name is Nathaniel Royd. I am a solicitor. Here is my card. Phil took the card, then looked at Mr. Royd wonderingly. He was tall, and his features were hard and sallow. Phil noticed that his lips were very thin and that his eyes were deep sunk and slit-like. He was not a pleasant-looking man, but Phil paid little heed to that because it was the first time he had met a lawyer. You have, or had, an uncle named Charles Merton Flash, Mr. Royd went on. I regret to inform you that he has passed away. Uncle Charlie? Phil frowned. I hardly knew him, sir. He went to California when I was a kid, but as far as I know, he's about the only relation I've got in the world, and you say he, he's... He died some months ago, the solicitor answered, and his entire fortune comes to you, the capital of which is sufficient to bring you an income of some fifty pounds a week. May I congratulate you on your good fortune? Fifty. Fifty pounds a week? Phil gazed at him blankly. That is the figure. We've been trying to trace you for some time, the solicitor said calmly. In addition, you inherit a certain estate near here, the old Grimwood Castle estate. Grimwood Castle, Phil started and his eyes widened. Why, that's the place no one will ever go near. They say that anyone who goes into it never comes out again. So I understand, and Mr. Royd smiled. That, however, is just idle talk. I happen to have been in communication with the present tenant, a rather eccentric old man. He is willing to hand you the whole place over, and I want you to meet him and make the necessary arrangements to take over the estate. Phil listened to Mr. Royd's calm voice while he tried to realize just what fifty pounds a week would mean. He thought of all his friends at the circus and how they would rejoice at his good luck. We'll have to tell the others about this, he said suddenly. We'll have a party. We'll celebrate. I'll give a big one moment. Mr. Royd smiled as he held up his hand. Naturally, you feel generous towards your friends here, but I have a plan. Say nothing for the moment. Take over Grimwood Castle, and then invite all your friends there and give them a celebration banquet. It's a wonderful old place, and think of the thrill and the surprise you will give them when you stand at the entrance and welcome them. Welcome them to your castle. Do you mean, really, I own this place, Phil asked? Well, I don't know that I want it, he added slowly as Mr. Royd nodded. It's got a mysterious reputation, supposed to be haunted and all that. It is not haunted. The present tenant spread that rumor because he wanted to be left alone, Mr. Royd said. As I told you, he wishes to meet you. He would be pleased if you would dine with him tonight. I am invited also, and over the meal I could give you all the details of your good fortune. I might later, if you will allow me, make arrangements for the banquet to your guests. You want me to go to Grimwood Castle tonight? Phil Flash repeated. Why not? You have no need to work in the circus any longer, Mr. Royd said. You will come, of course, and now perhaps you will excuse me. I must advise the tenant that you are coming and prepare certain papers for you to sign. I'll see you at eight o'clock at 
Grimwood Castle. He bowed, turned, and moved down the steps, leaving Phil Flash watching him as he threaded his way through the caravans and was lost in the crowd. As he went, a very faint, satisfied smile hovered about Nathaniel Royd's thinned lips. The Hooded Circle Moonlight shed chill beams on the hoary turrets and ugly battlements of Grimwood Castle. No light showed at its windows, which were the merest slits in the hoary walls. It stood at the end of a long, broad drive, where grass and weeds sprung from the neglected gravel, while on either hand, and all around, stretched the dim, forbidding blackness of the wood from which the ancient pile drew its name. For centuries the castle had stood there, the center of strange stories of dark deeds. Down in its dungeons, the Spanish Inquisition had worked on hapless victims. From its towering keep, living prisoners had been flung to their doom. Its walls were scarred by missiles flung from the weapons of besiegers, and the ground around was dark, men said, because of the blood that had once soaked it. None knew who tenanted the place, and many believed that the only beings there were were the flimsy ghosts of those whose agonized cries had once echoed about the unfeeling walls. There were stories of bold men who had dared the ghostly mysteries of the castle, men who had walked up that broad drive to be swallowed up by the darkness and never again seen. There were stories current of eerie sounds from the castle, of flitting figures strangely garbed, of inhuman shapes and forms that struck terror to the heart. And towards this castle, Phil Flash walked down the moon-flooded road. He wore evening clothes because he knew that if he were to dine at this place, his host would expect him to be dressed as befitted the heir to a fortune. Even now, Phil could not believe his good luck. He had been given so few details and he was anxious to learn more. It had been easy enough to get excused from further performances that night. The ringmaster did not think much of his show anyhow. Phil had told no one where he was going, and while he walked he planned what he could do. If he really were inheriting this castle, he would put everything in order, dispel its gloom, clear away the dust and cobwebs, and let the old banqueting hall ring again with merriment and laughter. The entrance to the castle grounds lay back from the road, where mighty iron gates were led into massive stone piers. The road itself was narrow and little used, for none came that way at night. Phil walked toward these gates, and he formed a handsome figure. He was very upright, with wide-set shoulders, and the moonbeams caught his white shirt front beneath his opened coat. He reached the gates and pushed against them. Hinges squealed rustily, and he stepped through to stride on up the drive. His shoes crouched noisily against the damp gravel, his tread at times muffled, by patches of lank grass. No sound other than his own footsteps came to his ears, although the strident noise of the fair he had just left seemed to ring faintly in his head. He turned a bend in the drive and came in sight of the castle entrance. Two bold, rounded towers were set on either side of a huge oaken door, iron-studded and heavy. Behind frowned the moss-streaked walls of the castle itself, bulking blackly against the sky. The place looked weird and strange, narrow windows glaring balefully down and no signs of life. 
Phil stirred a nervous qualm, and his teeth set. His nerves were taut and fine-drawn as his muscle, and he was not easily scared. He reached the door, looking for a knocker or bell pull. He saw none, and he was reaching out to hammer on the oak, when, to his amazement, the door opened before him, seeming to move without human agency. It swung wide and remained open. Phil Flesh saw a broad hall beyond. At one side was a huge fireplace with carvings above. Near this, in a bracket, was a single flaming torch which shed a flickering ruddy light over a stone flagged door and painted a red glow across the dark openings of doorways opposite. At the far end of the hall, Phil saw a single figure in evening clothes and recognized Mr. Royd. He saw the solicitor raise a hand and beckon him. For a moment more, Phil hesitated. Then he stepped into the castle, and the moment he was clear of the door, it crashed shut behind him with such suddenness that he spun around. He saw no one there. He went on again, his shoes ringing against the flagstones, and as he drew nearer the solitary figure, he saw that Mr. Royd was smiling. His thin lips were stretched off his dead white teeth and his eyes were narrowed so that the light of the torch just caught the pupils and made them glint in a way that was strangely evil. A little startled, Phil stopped short. So, the man with a thousand faces walks into a trap. Royd's eyebrows were raised and he vented a harsh, cackling laugh. And let me remind you of the saying that those who enter this place never come out again. He continued slowly and deliberately. That is true. I take care that they never get out. I am these. He pointed suddenly to something behind Phil, and he turned, gasping at what he saw. In a half-circle behind him were nearly a dozen hooded figures. They wore long cloaks of black which brushed the floor, and the torchlight gleamed on eyes which regarded him from narrow holes in the hood. While he stared with pondering heart, three more figures moved from the blackness behind the man before him, ranging close to him like a bodyguard. "'Have you heard of the hawk?' came Royd's voice again. "'You have, eh? Well, I am the hawk.' "'The hawk?' Phil's eyes dilated. The hawk was the leader of a gang of thieves who had ravaged the wealthiest places in London, a crook whose every coup was perfectly executed and who had never yet failed. In private life, I am Nathaniel Roy, a solicitor. At night, I am the hawk. And with you out of the way, my young friend, there will be none to challenge my right to the fortune which should come to you. I shall apprehend it, make it mine. It was simpler than I thought to get you here, and now you will vanish without leaving a trace, and you will also form the basis of a little experiment I have long wanted to try. Seize him! Phil saw the hooded figures closing behind him, and he leaped at the hawk. What do you mean by this, he gasped. Where's the tenant, then? He broke off and lashed out as the black-garbed forms clutched him. He smashed his fists at the hidden faces, struggling and twisting against the hands which gripped him. His hat was knocked off, and he lost his overcoat. He dropped three of them before they mastered him and dragged him, panting and still striving to struggle to face the smiling, sinister hawk again. I am the tenant, the man leered at him. 
My assistants here are so clad that they are both disguised and able to scare away yokels who may chance to wander in my grounds. Also, they are dressed for the work in hand tonight. He added menacingly, those cloaks and cowl were left here by members of the Spanish Inquisition. He smiled dreadfully, and his eyes closed to the merest cruel slits. In the dungeons below, the Inquisition used to question their victims. They used the thumbscrew and the rack, the Iron Maiden and the boot. Recently, I found another of their devices. I have perfected the mechanism, and we will see how it works with you as the subject. You mean you... Phil stared at him at horror. I mean that I shall remove you in a way which will amuse me. The hawk answered, and his voice was snarling. If you cry for help, and if your voice penetrates these walls, any who hear it will think they hear... The wails of a new ghost now. His voice deepened, and he raised one arm in an imperative gesture. Take him down to the dungeons. Dungeon Doom A heavy iron-barred door clashed behind him as Phil Flesh was flung headlong into a cell. At the far end was a window, guarded by thick bars, and on the walls beyond this a torch flashed smokily, shedding light sufficient to show him his surroundings. The floor was dank and wet, the walls were streaked with slime, the water spread and trickled over their stone, forming smooth patches which reflected the light like mirrors and showed Phil's figure as he turned and flung himself toward the bars which made up the great iron door. Beyond it he glimpsed the dark dim seen figures of the cowled men, moving away, turning off at either side. He would have shouted to them, but he knew that shouting was useless. They had no mercy, and this dungeon was deep in the foundations of the castle. So this was all his fortune had brought him. An hour before, he had been walking free, thinking of the things he would be able to do. Now he was in the clutches of a cold-blooded criminal who had plotted to wrest from him the money that was rightfully Phil's. Suddenly the silence was broken by a strange and rhythmic clanking. It was a sound as though mighty wheels were turning, and with this there came a grating, as might be made by some heavy mass being pushed over a dusty, gritty floor. For a space Phil stood listening, then he turned to the window behind, trying to locate the sound. It appeared to come from either side of him, and it was as he stared at the window that he saw the torch's light reflected by the wet walls, and the walls were moving. They were closing in on each side, moving slowly and almost imperceptibly, yet moving. He jumped at one and thrust his weight against it. He could feel it trembling and vibrating, coming remorselessly on. Heaven, what's this? Phil gasped aloud. The little device of which I spoke, came the voice of the hawk, and Phil saw his head and shoulders silhouetted against the glow of the torch. You fiend, Phil panted. The hawk chuckled. Outside, the rasping grind of old driving wheels sounded. Phil saw the walls closing slowly, ruthlessly on him from either hand. If I ever get out of this, you'll know all about it, he cried, 
looking up with blazing eyes. When I work, I'm thorough, the hawk replied. Dead men tell no tales, and you'll be... What have I done to you, Phil panted. Nothing. The hawk leered at him. You merely stand in my path, you black-hearted fiend. Phil tried to leap at the window, but his fist came into contact only with the iron bars, and the watching man's laugh goaded him to fury. He hurled himself at the moving walls, but he could not stay them. He hurled his weight on the iron door, but it did not even quiver from his charge. Still, he attacked it again and again, then dashed himself at the walls as they ground their way inward, making the cell narrower and narrower. Well, I'll leave you to it now, Phil Flash, came the voice of the hawk from the barred window. I have other work to do. He waved his hand, and with a last inhuman laugh he was gone. His chest heaving, Phil gazed with baffled eyes around the narrowing cell. The closing walls were so near now that he could brace his hands against him, and as he did so, thrusting at an arm at each side and exerting every last ounce of his strength to keep them apart. But the hooded figures, turning on the cranks outside, worked ruthlessly on. Phil's muscle could not stop those shifting walls of balanced granite and his quivering arms bent under the strain. I'll never get out of this, he gasped to himself through the grating of the wheels. I'm done for. He knew that he was doomed, as much a victim of the cold-blooded criminal as prisoners had been to the Inquisitors who had last made use of this death chamber. Again, he tried the door and again the window, only to fall back. Done for. Caught like a rat, he told himself caught like a... His thoughts broke off as he saw a reflection of his face against one of the wet walls. The sight of that sent an idea whipping through his vein. Was there not some way in which he could turn his strange powers to account? Was there not some way in which he might yet save himself? He bent closer to the wall, his face reflected clearly by the light from the torch. Water lay against the granite like glass and reflected his features like a mirror. Phil's hand went to his face, touching deftly, stretching his lips, pressing down his eyebrows, puffing the flesh beneath his eyes, and changing the shape of his nose. His memory was photographic. It was his habit to study the features of all whom he had met, and he had studied the features of the hawk more closely than any. He straightened from the wall, threw back his head, and called loudly. Above the deadly grinding of the wheels that moved the walls, there came to the ears of the hooded men what seemed to be the voice of the hawk himself. Stop! Stop the moving walls! Let me out! Do you hear me? Stop and let me out! The clanking ceased. On the other side of the iron-barred door peered two garbed figures, eyes startled as they gazed in. It's the chief! One of them gasped in amazement as he saw the figure in evening clothes. How'd you get in there? Never mind how I got in. Let me out, came the answer. And in that moment, Phil Flash was more like the hawk than the hawk himself, if that were possible. His face, to the minutest detail, had been transformed to the grim features of the criminal. The startled men on the door drew its bolts and swung it wide, and as Phil stepped out, he saw more of the gang there. Where's Flash got to, one of them panted. How'd he get out, boss? How'd you get in, chief? 
there's only the window, and that isn't big for... Never mind, Flash has escaped, Phil snarled the words in the hawk's voice. I can't explain now. Remain down here and wait. He strode on. Torches were in sockets in the wall, revealing dungeon doors and traps, which led down to yet other, noisome cells. Opposite he saw stone steps, which led upwards, and he mounted them swiftly. None followed him, and he stepped out into the hall to come face to face with the hawk as he emerged. The man's jaw dropped when he saw his own image coming toward him. Then, with a swift movement, Phil restored his own features. Surprised to see me, he asked grimly. I fooled your... He broke off as he saw the hawk's hand sliding to his pocket. Phil guessed that he was reaching for a weapon, and he leaped, right fist swinging. His bunched knuckles cracked home to the man's jaw with all the strength of Phil's shoulders behind the punch. I've been aching to do that, he gasped, as the force of the blow sent the hawk backwards for his head to strike the stone floor and jerk him into insensibility. That'll keep you quiet until I can bring the police. Phil went down the hall at a run, dragging open the great door. Ten seconds he was racing down the drive to reach the road and bound for the nearest village and the police he knew he would find there. Before midnight, a strong force of county police had reached Grimwood Castle on the information which Phil Flash gave them. As a result, the Hawk and all his men found themselves in handcuffs while it took six motor lorries to remove the booty which the police found stored there in the headquarters of the gang. Investigations proved that the Hawk was, indeed, a solicitor and that, in his ordinary way of business, he was handling the affair of Phil's inheritance. You'll get your money all right, a police inspector in charge of the case told Phil after the raid. Don't worry about that, but I'm afraid you don't own the castle. The Hawk merely rented that from someone else. I don't know that I'd want the castle, Phil told him. I'd hate the place, he went on. Fifty pounds a week I'll get now. That's a lot of money. What are you going to do with it, asked the inspector. I don't know, quite, Phil answered. But first I'll give a banquet to all the circus folk, and after that, well... I should think there are a lot of things that a chap with a thousand faces can do. Meet Phil Flash again next week in another swift action yarn called The Quest of the Silver Star. Well, let me know what you think, and if you have uh, some appreciation for vets and other stories to follow. And uh, yeah, the email address is kpqr.torc at gmail. Dot com And uh, until we meet, since uh, we're already over time, set the controls for the heart of the fun. <laughs>